kids, I would have been totally terrified (laughs) and would have thought, that's not me, that's not my life, you've got it wrong. But he prepares you for what's coming. You're not going to suddenly find yourself in hot water and think, I don't know what I'm doing. But, like, each step, like, just take it confidently and trust in him and he will use the gifts he's given you. You don't have a gift for no reason. Hello and welcome to the Together podcast, a conversation about faith, justice and how to change the world. I'm Dan and today I'm joined by Chris. Chris, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Fresh off holiday, I am. Fresh off holiday. Yeah, feeling good. Well, not feel, you know that thing where you're not actually rested? Yeah. Because you've just come back from the holiday yeah, and you're yeah. like, you're hot, bothered, coming yeah. from the airport, sweating. And you need a holiday to recover. Exactly, from that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> well, we'll go easy with you. Uh, in this episode, we'll be chatting to Baker Martha Collison. You may remember from Great British Bake Off a few years ago, but more recently she's written several recipe books. She regularly writes for Waitrose magazine and has even helped start a charity. So we talked to her about Bake Off, about her passion for justice and how she uses her platform for good. Now, Chris, we're talking to Martha. What are your baking skills like? On a scale of one to ten, be modest. I'm really good at eating. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't specify baking. Okay. I haven't baked for like, since like I was in like year nine doing food tech. Okay. Literally, I don't think I've baked since that long. I'm a great cook. Yeah, yeah. Oh, let me just put that out Okay, there. no, that's fine. I'll you cook can... that storm. But like actually like baking cakes and stuff, I don't, I don't even know mm. where I'm at right now. So I haven't baked uh, a cake since the 23rd of January, 2014. Um, Why so specific? Well, I'll tell you why it's specific, Chris, because um, we were doing a a Great British Bake Off fundraiser um, four-tier fund um, at a workplace I was previously. Um, And so I went all out. I built like multi-layered sculpture cake. It cost me £45 in ingredients (laughs) and it took me like six hours to make. It was incredible. Um, and I lost to some cookies. Man. I was I was knocked out of the Bake Off competition. That's pretty harsh. Some cookies. I don't feel like... I mean, were they good cookies, though? Does, it doesn't matter, Chris. <laughs> I'll tell you what they weren't. They weren't a two-tiered sculpted masterpiece. I need a picture of this, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, I Maybe might have it Maybe the, put them in the show notes or something. Yeah, straight in the show notes. And then you'll realise that actually all I made was a flan. Like, what a flan? And I'm just bigging it up. So we're not very good at, at baking, no. but maybe maybe we'll learn something today. But before we talk to Martha, it's time for What in the World? So this is What in the World, where we discuss some of the big talking points from recent news stories. Chris, what's up today? So it's October. Obviously, we're bang in the middle of October, which means it's Black History Month in the UK. Not to be confused with the US one, which I think is February or something. But anyway, uh, it's always been something that like I've always looked forward to, always great to celebrate. And it's important, particularly in social justice spaces, that we acknowledge and highlight key figures in past and recent black history, even living as well, who are leaving or who have left a positive impact on all of humanity. And it's something that's so needed, isn't it? Um, but there are questions that spring up of like why it should only be a, a month yeah, and whether that's almost like a focus that everyone concentrates on and then forgets everything for the yeah. rest, rest, rest of the year. You know, and do we, do we learn enough about key black figures in the UK as opposed to it being US-centric yeah. as well? Like, are there UK voices? So it's a big subject with lots of kind of varying opinions, but I don't think anyone's suggesting that it's, it's <laughs> yeah. a bad thing fundamentally, are they? We hope not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're definitely right. Like, I think... 
there is this kind of school of thought of like, why is it only a month? And that comes from both like, I don't know, it's weird. I mean, you do have some people who are like, why are we focusing on black history the whole month? Mm. That's too long. And I'm like, uh, hun, we've got 11 months <laughs> of the year to focus on the rest. You know what I mean? And so for me, like growing up in school, going and doing history and whatever, learning about Henry VIII's wives, which really has no bearing on my life right now. I really enjoyed Black History Month because actually it speaks into who who I am as a person, my heritage, etc. But like you're right, yeah, I think uh, a lot of the time as well it is like this focus on US and it can get this kind of simplification of like Black History equals slavery and like what happened after that. Mm. And actually there's a lot more that's involved in it. And I think it's important that we actually look back at history in an accurate way rather than just kind of taking a picture of what we want to see. So like a good example of that is Martin Luther King Jr. There's always this kind of like idea that, oh, you know, he was just this kind of like, he was, he was great. Everyone, everyone like is on the same page that he was great, but it's kind of like, yeah, he was great. And, you know, he was really, he was really humble and chill. And he just kind of like, he's worked with people and people always go to the, I had a dream speech. I have a dream, not I had a dream. <laughs> I have a dream speech, which yeah, 1000% inspirational. But if you listen to like some of his other speeches, particularly towards the end of his life, uh, which was also, like let's mention, was cut short by being assassinated. Yeah. So let's not pretend like yeah, he had yeah. some fairy tale life. Um, this guy was radical. Like he was calling out, like economic injustice he was like saying you know what the way to hurt the way to hurt people and get our messages across is actually we're going to start taking money out of these out of these institutions we're going to be doing x y and z yes it's still going to be peaceful but actually there is a part of this which is radical and i think that gets lost in the message unfortunately yeah definitely and and i think that's why black history month is so important and i speaking for myself as a white guy i think that months like this it it highlights how how much we're unaware of the, I don't know, conditioning that we have to not notice those underlying things. Like you're yeah. saying, we, we see the surface level Martin Luther King, not everything else. Mm. And it reminded me recently of the video that went viral of the, the Botham Jean murder case mm-hmm. where the, the victim's brother forgave his murderer. Yeah. Um, so a lot of you may have seen this, but there was a case where a white female police officer... Um, got confused um, and went into a flat thinking it was her own flat and then got scared when she saw a man in her flat and shot shot him dead. Mm. Um, now, there's a lot of detail to the case and it's really important to go and read up on it, but this, this video that went viral was about uh, the court case that followed and uh, the victim's brother, halfway through the court case, very publicly forgiving mm. the, the woman for, for essentially murdering his brother. And so as a Christian, I draw Christian themes of forgiveness from that and inspiration that Jesus calls us to forgive Mm -hmm. everybody. Um, But then we had a conversation the other day about race and how actually there's a a wider context to that video that me as a white person, I didn't pick up on at all. But Mm. as soon as you mentioned it, it was clear to me. And I think I think times like this and, and months where we're. Uh, where we're looking specifically at race and how culturally it's it's embedded yeah. and racism is embedded is is really helpful. 100%. And like you said, I think the whole forgiveness aspect of it is admirable. And I, I would never, ever presume to say what I would do in that situation. I've never had a family member murdered in any capacity. So, I mean, I've had a family member hurt before and I've like, <laughs> like sparked mm. out, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so to have them actually no longer be around would be a whole nother level so for for though for the family in the case i was like you know what 
this is part of your process. I, I don't, I'm not going to try to speak into that. But I remember when I saw the judge hugging the murderer and I was just like, this is strange. Something very strange about it. And there was a lot of chat around kind of like this history of black forgiveness and actually what that does. And actually does it come... Of course, there's like there's elements of Christian uh, forgiveness in there, but also are there like overtones of like kind of this racial dynamic where black people are done wrong and instead of justice being done, it's just it's a forgiveness mm. thing. Mm. And I think the forgiveness is fine, but I think it's actually, like you said, it's like what happened, what are the connotations of that around that? And even in this case, you know, the police officer who allegedly got confused she got 10 years for taking someone's life. Uh, for me, that's just a bit wild. Like, he, he was on the couch. Mm. I don't understand what could have posed a threat in that moment. But um, having 10 years and then being hugged by mm. multiple people in the court, mm. for me, that's that's weird. And mm. it sends a... It kind of sends a message of kind of like, you know, when we have when we talk about matters of injustice and we talk about people taking a stand for that, like protesting or whatever, kind of sends this message of like, oh, why do you need to protest? Like, mm. why can't you just be like them and, and forgive? And again, that's not me pointing at the family. That's just me saying, actually has this forgiveness replaced mm. actual justice? Mm -hmm. I think a good place to think about actually where how does forgiveness function properly in that way is when you think about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the apartheid ended. And I remember watching some videos in a documentary years ago and you would see like people actually sitting across from each other like we are now and being like, I'm, I, I'm incredibly sorry that I treated you as less than human. I killed your, killed your family and I am I am wrong for that, and I'm asking for your forgiveness. But and then and forgiveness was given, but also with that justice was also yeah, carried out. Yeah, and there was an actual acknowledgement of injustice that yeah. took place as well. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, it was it was interesting to suddenly see that through more than just a Christian lens, and a, uh, to see it as a, a racial issue as mm. well, um, rather than just a, a video that evokes forgiveness and, and grace. Mm. What advice would you have for? For, for me as a white person in Black History Months in, to encourage me to engage with it in a really meaningful way? I would say start wherever you're at. I don't, think like, I don't want any, anyone to feel like, oh, there's this barrier that I, I'm not woke enough to understand or whatever. But just like start where you're at and just get the full picture of whatever you're looking at. So if you know about Martin Luther King, read up about him more. If you know about, you know, slavery, like even... And that's the thing as well, actually, like, it doesn't just have to be about slavery. It doesn't have to just be about injustice. It can be about, you know, great, great key figures in black history, no matter what they're doing or no matter what they've done. So, yeah, Google. Google's there for everyone. <laughs> Google's dangerous, though, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can be dangerous. Well, you should don't get onto, like, the dark net or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also, people, um, if anyone wants to read up a little bit more about what we've been talking about, you're writing an article for We Are Tier yes. Fund, aren't you, about this uh, that goes into a bit more detail. Yeah. And also a future episode um, of the podcast is looking at, at racial injustice in a, a yeah. few areas as, as well as other stuff. So if you are interested, do head over uh, later this month to wearetearfund.org to read the article and, and look out for that podcast. But for now, we're going to bring you our chat with Martha Collison. Yep, so my name is Martha. I was a baker on the Great British Bake Off. 
around six years ago, which makes me feel very old. <laughs> but um, you were young at the time, right? I was, so, yeah, you know, I was. You're still not that old. But it still just doesn't feel that long ago. Um, and now I work in the food industry. I write a, a weekly column for Waitrose Weekend magazine. Um, I do loads of different foodie stuff and I'm a tier fund ambassador as well. So I've got my finger in lots of different pies as you like. <laughs> Great. And can you give us some baking tips after the podcast just Absolutely. to help us out? That's really good. <laughs> so people might remember you from six years ago as a young 17-year-old Martha on Great British Bake Off. What, what was it like at, at that point arriving in the now famous and famous back then big white marquee <laughs> I guess that's quite a daunting thing, right? It was genuinely the most overwhelming thing that's ever <laughs> happened to me. I think it was, I so I'd grown up watching Bake Off. I think I was probably one of the first bakers that ever went into the tent that had been inspired and like my baking journey, if you like, had been inspired by watching it. So a lot of the other bakers in my series were kind of like, oh yeah, I'd seen one series and I thought, yeah, why not apply? Whereas I was like, I've watched every series of this show. <laughs> like I'm a super fan, <laughs> like almost weirdly so. So I was so excited about <laughs> being there, but I could knew I was young. Yeah, like It's quite interesting because before you kind of start filming the show, you don't meet all the other bakers until the day of the first day of filming, but you know you're on it for a month or two beforehand. So I'd kind of built this picture in my head of like what my kind of cohort of bakers would look like and where I'd fit within that and I was expecting as there is in most series there'd be some students there'd be some Mm -hmm. other people of a similar age to me and I got there and it was like very clear that they'd wanted to emphasize the fact that I was only 17 because I was 17 and the next youngest person was 31 really which isn't very old but compared to 17 (laughs) (laughs) it was just like it went from 31 up to 70 and I just thought how am I gonna like befriend these people yeah. but I did and, it was and you're still really good friends with them aren't you because I saw they uh they basically baked all of your cakes for your wedding right it was epic <laughs> yeah they it's so funny because I think when you go through an experience with people of that kind of intensity and excitement no one else has had it even mm-hmm. the bakers in other series their experience will be slightly different because a different crew or different baking and all kinds of stuff so you become really close even if you're from all walks of life yeah. which is quite strange um, but yeah, they it'd been like five years on and they all like, I invited them all to the wedding because we're good friends. Um, and we just said to them, hey, um, I'd love it if you'd bake something, but like, don't put any pressure on yourself. I've made wedding cakes before and I really don't enjoy doing it because mm-hmm. I find it so stressful having to like be like, the highlight of day, someone's day. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then I just spend the whole wedding day looking at this cake and being like, please don't fall over. Please don't taste disgusting. Did I use sugar? Did I use salt? And it's just like a very stressful experience. And I didn't want any of them to have that. So I was like, just make whatever you enjoy making the most, like just make a bake quartile plate of brownies but of course they're very competitive people so yeah. instead of a plate of brownies I had like 10 full tiered wedding cakes <laughs> which we didn't complain about and all got eaten so yeah it's good and the big question is did you get a Paul Hollywood handshake and did he even do those back then do you know what I didn't get a Paul Hollywood okay. handshake but I think he is a lot more like liberal he with is his handshakes I feel like these that as well. he's dealing them out all over the yeah. shop it's like week two and you think come on Paul we'll save something for later yeah, come on but he did do a couple but there was they were a lot less frequent yeah yeah it's much more of a cultural kind of phenomenon now, isn't it? It's like yeah, it's an event. The Hollywood handshake. The Hollywood handshake. <laughs> um, and when you watch the the later series, do you now you know all the secrets and how things work in the background? <laughs> do you view it differently to how you did before you were on it? Uh, I do sometimes. I think now because it's changed format slightly, it's on Channel 4, 
it has different presenters and yeah. different judges. I don't feel the same kind of level of trauma watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I initially watched it, having come immediately out of it and it felt exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It was that weird feeling like when you like when you move out of your family home and you see other people moving in, it was like that weird sense of that's my bench. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah what are yeah. you doing in there? Um along with the relief of not having to go through it all again. Yeah. But it's really nice to watch it now and just see people like really falling in love with baking and I also love just seeing the generation that it's inspired Mm because I think so many people love to bake now like I used to love baking when I was like 12 or 13 but not many people did it was quite Mm -hmm. unusual and whereas now but like every 12 year old is like into baking which I kind of love yeah yeah and it's been good to see how the series as a whole over however many years has been kind of prompting that and it prompted you to start all those years ago when you were younger and here you are a bit in some ways you can't quite believe the journey you've been on right no it's crazy I would never in a million years have been able to like paint this picture of my life if yeah. you were gonna put it like that like even from I used to work in Waitrose as a Saturday girl yeah. when I was 17 that was like and I was so excited when I got that job because yeah. I loved food and I thought wow I get to learn about all these products <laughs> <laughs> and then for Bake Off to happen and I went into Bake Off with it was it was quite big at that time it just moved to BBC One but it wasn't like a huge it wasn't as big as it is now mm-hmm. and the winner would generally like get a book deal or get to do something fun but everyone else didn't and I knew I didn't win and I didn't think I ever would have done <laughs> against all of these older people quarterfinals is good though yeah I was really so happy <laughs> so I got to the quarterfinals I thought oh that was a really fun experience I like, went back to school and thought well that was like oh one day I'll tell the grandkids I was on the bake-off and that'll yeah. be a fun story but life will just carry on as normal I didn't expect any sort of career or any sort of like mm-hmm. opportunity to arise from it. So it's just been such an adventure of like waiters getting in contact with me at 18 yeah. years old and saying, would you like to come and work with us? It's amazing. <laughs> it's just so overwhelming and it's been exciting. And are you watching this season? I am, yeah. Okay. And who's your hot tip to win? Can you share that with us? Or, I can. Or are you going to be impartial? I'm, uh, I don't know. I mean, I really thought that Michelle, who went out a couple of weeks ago, had it in the bag because okay. I just saw so much baking talent in her and I was gutted when she went yeah spoiler for anyone who's catching up yeah it was I feel like it was a couple of weeks ago so I'm hoping you should have caught up this comes out if you haven't caught up by now (laughs) I really like Steph and I want her to win because I think she's just really humble and really kind of just like can't believe how good she is and I love that in her and we have to keep an eye on her then and see I think so bets are on her (laughs) and so coming out of great British Bake Off, obviously all of your experience and your skills in baking, you had to then decide what what to do with that going forward. And so you've turned that into profession, but you've also turned that in a way to use your platform for good. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition and, and coming out from that experience and then knowing you want to do do something for good and do something in the sphere of justice? Like, Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, of course. Um, I think as soon as I found out I was on Bake Off, so I couldn't believe that it was even happening to me. It felt like some out-of-body experience or, yeah, something that you don't get to do. Um, And I just remember thinking, wow, like a lot of people watch this show. And then when it came out and was on TV and suddenly like just people wanted to know more about me and my life like to gain momentum and it was all quite strange and quite an odd thing to experience happening to you. And suddenly my social media channels were growing and people were saying hello to me in the street who I didn't know. Mm. <laughs> and it was just like someone once said to me, they're like, did you know, I think it's something like one in eight people that you see in the street watch Bake Off. Because it's like one in eight yeah. people, but that's how many people watch the final. And they would have seen your face. And that's such an overwhelming thing for someone to say to you. And you're just like, you're oh, counting thanks. the people. Yeah. <laughs> you go into a big room, you're like, some of these people yeah. will know me. But 
um, I've been a Christian, I have Christian parents, but I made the decision to become a Christian and got baptised when I was about 12 or 13. And I knew when I got into Bake Off, I was like, this is so rare, and so unusual. And the chance of me even being in this final 12 was so slim that I just totally put that down to God working in my life. And I mm. trusted him with it and said, look, if this is what you want to do, <laughs> I hadn't planned this. And I'm finding it a bit like intense, but this is cool if this is your plan then let's do it and then as the weeks went on and I started to I did okay I managed to just like cling on in there stay in a few more weeks bake another day um I just had this real sense growing within me that he'd kept me in for a reason mm-hmm. and that actually I would have a bit of a platform and what am I going to do with that and then when the show started to air and people started to follow me I was like actually I have now that's happened <laughs> I've garnered a platform and as a Christian I thought I can't just use this to glorify myself if that makes sense because a lot of people are like right what can I do with this how many books can I write how many people are interested in me and I found all of that quite like not something that I wanted I thought I can't just have all of this focus on me and like lift myself up and actually there are so many other things that I want lifted much higher than myself um I've always had quite a strong heart for justice particularly in human trafficking and refugees and I've had like prophetic words spoken over me when I was about 14 and really felt strongly that this is something I want to be involved in. And I thought this is the perfect time now. I've been given a bit of a voice through a hobby that I never would have ever linked in with this. Like baking isn't something you would generally think, oh, that will give you an advocacy platform. But the Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> and I suddenly found myself with one and thought, right, how can I use this for good, I guess? And then, so how, how did kind of your work with Tear Fund and other charities come into that? Was that something that presented itself quite easily yeah in a in a way I feel like it presented itself easily but it takes a few kind of those stepping out of the boat moments and putting yourself a little bit out there and it was quite interesting because when I was filming Bake Off like you never know how many weeks you're going to be in so you don't know how many weeks of your life to like start to block things out for and I remember really vividly I was supposed to be kind of on one of the serving teams at Big Church Day Out which is a big Christian festival that Tear Fund are part of but loads of other charities are as well I was supposed to be kind of just like helping sell tickets or sell merchandise or something with my friend. And it was kind of it timed between week seven and eight of Bake Off. I thought, I'm not going to be in it by then. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be totally fine. I'll be able to come and camp and it will be chill. It'll be a nice way to celebrate, like, I don't know, do it having this thing happen to me, but no one else knowing. And she knew about it and she was one that didn't know about it. And lots of people didn't know about it. And she was one person that did. And, and then it got to week seven and I went, I can't believe I'm still in. <laughs> but... I didn't expect this and everyone's like you shouldn't go to big church day out you've got loads more to do on your mind like you should be just practicing and baking flat out and you shouldn't be worrying about this and I really felt something in me be like you should go and it wasn't wise (laughs) it wasn't worldly wise but we went and camped and served and then as I was there I was feeling this sense of I don't know what's going on in my life right now. Everything just feels really grown up. This whole TV experience is way above my years and I'm not quite mature enough and I feel like I've got a lot of growing up to do. And I remember just sitting there with my friend and praying, just being like, God, I don't know why you've put me in this situation, but I know it's for a reason and please show me what that is because I feel a bit lost. And in one of our little breaks that we had from our serving role, we went and sat just outside what happened to be a tear fund tent, but I didn't realise And Tom Herbert, who's one of the fabulous Baker brothers from Channel 4, who I really loved but didn't know worked for Tear Fund or was an ambassador, 
just came out randomly, not in the program, um, just as we happened to be sat, sat outside and started to do like a short talk about how he'd been using baking as a skill to train young girls in Laos. Do you feel like he was in. talking directly to you <laughs> and it in that situation? It was one of those moments where like no one else is here. Yeah. Like he'd come out and said, hey, look at the skill I have. It's baking. Yeah. Look at the thing I'm passionate about. It's human trafficking. Look how I'm combining them. My, it was, my friend turned to me and she went, you were praying for someone to speak to you, mm. speak into this in your life. That's so cool. And look what's happened. And I, to- I left that event just feeling completely reassured that God had a plan for this whole situation. So as soon as Bake Off was finished and we were allowed to talk about it, um, I called up Tear Fund and said, hey, I'd love to kind of find out a bit more about the Big Bake, which is the new campaign they're about to lead, which is crazy as well, because mm. I've just been on a baking show and the campaign that they happen to be running is about baking. I said, I'd really love to be involved, but I don't know what your campaign is at the moment. And they said, oh, we're about to launch a human trafficking campaign um, and we'd love to take you to see some of our work in Cambodia. And like a couple of months later, I got to go out to Cambodia and do some baking and learn more about the work Tear Fund are doing out there mm-hmm. for sustainable development and just like having those pinch yourself moments of like God really does work all things together. Mm. It's not just random. It's not just, oh, I liked baking cupcakes when I was 10 and then this has happened randomly. It's like, no, all of those little seeds, all of those little things that you enjoy doing can actually really work themselves into something much bigger. And that must feel like really good confirmation because like you say, there's lots of different areas that are unrelated working together. So you being on Bake Off, mm-hmm. uh, you being outside that tent at Big Church Day Out, Tear Fund looking at Big Bake and Tear Fund looking at human trafficking. Yeah. And then you're thinking, well, my experience at Great British Bake Off and the prophetic words I've sp- had spoken over me about helping in the area of human trafficking and all of that just tying together is, is incredible. You mentioned that baking is quite an unusual skill to mix with justice. And I think um, I kind of include myself in this, but sometimes we think we put down our skills and how we can use them for good Mm. um, and use them in a way that God can multiply them and and do good and bring his kingdom. What advice would you give to people who may be listening to this and thinking, oh, that's great because Martha was on the bake-off, but maybe they haven't identified their own skill and how they can use it. Have you got any words of wisdom from from the time after Bake Off when you were working out what to do with your platform that, that might help those people? Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest thing I'd say is just don't write yourself off because we all have different gifts and different things that we've been given and things that have been put in our hands and what we do with that, it looks different for each person. So I love baking. So baking is my kind of love language, if you like. I make things to share, but even pre-Bake Off, Baking was the thing that I would do for friends who were in need or to give to people who didn't have as much or to fundraise. And there were little things you can do with a skill. It doesn't have to be you're waiting for your big break. So I felt like pre-Bake Off, I didn't, I wasn't thinking, oh, something big is coming. I was thinking, what can I do right now? And that's fundraising. That's I can bake cakes for bake sales. I can bake cakes for friends in need. And all of those things kind of multiply together and then start to snowball, I guess. But I think it's focus on what you've got right now like my sister for example is totally different to me she loves music and she's looking she looks for ways that music can be a way to serve other people a way to bring justice a way to perform and I think there's just so many different giftings out there and it doesn't have to be oh I'm not good at I don't know public speaking so I can't I can never be an advocate I can never kind of speak into justice situations because I wasn't very good at public speaking at all and just through all of these experiences God has given me that gift (laughs) 
out of absolutely nowhere. And if you told me six years ago I would speak on podcasts and in front of people at events, yeah. I would be totally terrified. Yeah, <laughs> I would absolutely. have thought, that's not me. That's not my life. Yeah. You've got it wrong. But he prepares you for what's coming. You're not going to suddenly find yourself in hot water and think, I don't know what I'm doing. But yeah. like each step, like just take it confidently and trust in him and he will use the gifts mm. he's given you. You don't have a gift for no reason. <laughs> interrupt you there to share something really exciting with you. Our young adult gatherings are back, an immersive day exploring the global issues of our generation, with hands-on workshops, messages from leading voices, and practical takeaways that help us take another step towards ending extreme poverty. And this time, it's all about plastic. We'll be holding three events around the UK, each featuring an extra special meal. We'll be in Glasgow on the 26th of October and in Manchester and Belfast on the 9th of November. To book, head to www.wr.tfrn.org forward slash gatherings. See you there. And what I love about your story is you, you prayed at several points about um, how God can help use your baking and mix that with what mm. you're passionate about. And I think there's, you know, whatever people's skills are, whether it's writing, drawing, football, baking, speaking, singing, like all of these things, it'd be really interesting for us to just say to God, like, use them in any way possible. And we talk a lot about using what God's given us, using what's in our hand at the moment. And sometimes we just don't realize the incredible potential of that Mm -hmm. when it's multiplied by the Holy Spirit, rather than just something that we think is a hobby. You know, it's, uh, it's so much more powerful when we give it to God and say, God, you, mm. you you create environments and situations where we can use this for your glory. Yeah, and I think praying that prayer often is really important. Like even now, mm. I don't feel like I've settled into what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, and I have to keep yeah. kind of bringing it before God and saying, at the moment, I have a lot of Instagram followers, which blows my mind a little bit. But I have to be okay with the fact that if tomorrow God said you need to delete your Instagram account and yeah. I called you for a different purpose, yeah. I have to be able to surrender that to Him. Yeah. And I think I find that a really challenging thing to have to do each day is say like, if I am fully trusting him I'm not relying on these little parts of my career and saying no this is me now it's like now I started this journey by saying I don't know what who I am yeah, or what yeah. I'm doing and you need to show me yeah and I need to keep making that choice yeah it's really interesting you mentioned Instagram like how do you find the whole social media side of things I think um it's been an interesting journey to say the least for social media if you take it right back to five slash six years ago just coming out of Bake Off and we had a tiny bit of like media preparation for oh, people might pick up on this as a big show because it's growing <laughs> you think and <laughs> and it went insane and um, like I'd had Twitter and Instagram since I was probably 13 14 but only from a friendship perspective I followed people I liked mainly people I knew and then suddenly my whole life was kind of saturated and overwhelmed by hundreds of people who I didn't know following me, which didn't, which felt weird, like people following along with your life. It's like a strange thing to imagine, um, but more so making comments. And I felt like at school and growing up, I've always been fairly confident and I'd not really, um, thankfully, I guess, experienced much bullying. Um, and I've always been quite self-assured. And then suddenly this whole kind of world came crashing down because people online were making comments about me that weren't true or that they'd perceived. Because when you put yourself out there on a big TV show, Mm. I just entered because I love baking, not because I wanted to become famous or because I wanted to be on TV, just because I love to bake. 
And suddenly you put yourself out there and people have a right to make a judgment on you. And then some people will decide to share that judgment. And sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. And I just found reading through Twitter and it's human nature to want to know what people think about you, particularly when you're in your teens. It's like, I really like not quite sure who I am, what my identity is in. So I'm looking for things to grab onto about what people are saying about Mm. me. And it's quite unusual to have that offered up to you on a plate. So when you can type your own name into Twitter or your own hashtag into Instagram. It's a problem I've never had. (laughs) (laughs) It was weird. And it was weird because it wasn't just me that could read it as well. It wasn't private. It's so public in the the sphere, isn't it? Yeah. And I knew even my parents were thinking, oh my goodness, I'm reading these things about my own child that I never Mm. thought I would ever have access to. Mm. And the majority of my feedback, if you can call it that, was positive, which Mm -hmm. I was really thankful for. But we cling on to negative things and probably maybe one in 10 or one in 20 was negative, but they'd be really cruel negative comments about the way I look or my perceived background or the fact that I speak in a certain way or just complete downright lies or people just saying, I really hate her. Mm. And it's not, it hadn't really been something I'd come up against before. And I really found it one of those moments where I thought, right, I really need to know who I am in this sense. Did you ever consider walking away from social media because of it? Or did you always see the the positive side of it alongside the negative I think I was fortunate in the sense that because it was one in 20 and it was only really if I'd searched my own name so I was seeking out things whereas who I'm following and who's following me does how you do have an opportunity to speak life and to be positive and to build people up but it was interesting watching the way that other people were using social media because I was trying to be quite careful in not saying negative things and I still do the same even though I have a certain opinion I'll be careful the way I phrase it because I think you can so easily offend people. Mm. And I know that even the way some of the other bakers, they were getting a lot more hate than I was. And the way they were reacting to it was instead of just like ignoring it or like confiding in a friend or like working out your identity for yourself, they were retweeting the negative and letting all of their followers kind of like hate on the the hater, which just intensified the problem. And I actually, I did it. I remember doing it once. (laughs) Well, I didn't even retweet, but I just replied saying, I don't think this comment is fair or something. It wasn't like a big attack. It was just a mild reply. And then because you've replied, it comes up on a lot of other people's feeds and suddenly it snowballed into this huge, I can't believe you'd say that about Martha, blah, blah, blah. And I felt awful. Mm. Even though this person has said something horrible about me, I felt a million times worse for exemplifying that for making that public and mm. then letting other people jump onto it. And I thought, I'm not going to do that again because mm. it's not honouring. Even if that person's dishonoured me, it's not my role. Yeah, It's not my place, particularly if I'm saying I'm a Christian. It's not my place to, I should be turning the other cheek. I shouldn't be <laughs> retweeting them and letting everyone else hate on them depending on how I feel. Yeah. Um, so it's a real challenge. Like social media, it can be a real voice for good. Like mm-hmm. I love the fact that I get to talk about my faith. I don't like kind of Bible bash everyone and talk about it all the time. But if I'm doing a tier fund event, tier fund is quite clearly a Christian charity and I'm not ashamed of that. Um, If it's Christmas or Easter, I think we have such a powerful moment. People open up to Christianity at these times and we have an opportunity to be honest about what we believe and speak life to people. Mm. So I think you've got to look for the good things in it. And I think there are loads of positives, which is why I still have it. But then it's being very aware of the fact that a lot of things aren't as they seem or are quite fake or like can be very negative. Mm. And I really enjoyed following your uh, family of pigeons. 
<laughs> story. Where... You're on my close friends list, Dan, so you oh, have really? special <laughs> access to my pigeon okay. stories. <laughs> Not everybody knows the pigeon story. But uh, I guess some pigeons like laid eggs, did they, or something? And they then did. On our, we... we have a tiny little balcony in our yeah. flat. And some pigeons made that home there yeah. and we didn't notice until they'd already laid eggs. So yeah. then we nurtured and loved yeah. the pigeon babies as ugly as they were. <laughs> but then they, it got a bit infested, so we had to get rid of them. Okay. Oh, wow. When you say get rid of? No, we, okay, so we right, just, good. they grew up. <laughs> they grew up and then we had to get rid of the empty nest. But, and okay. then they just kind of all loitered around it and peered in and it yeah. felt horrible. And okay, then one of our neighbours installed spikes. Oh, no. I know. But it's okay. None, okay. No pigeons were harmed in the middle. Okay. I feel like when you said get rid of, I was, I was worrying that that side of things didn't get to Instagram and actually they'd met very Yeah, I have a bit of spikes end. on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not all, it's not all real, people. It's not all real. Instagram v real life. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the, the trip you did with Tear Fund to Lebanon. So you went to visit some refugees. Mm-hmm. What was that like as an experience? Yes, last March I went out with Tear Fund to see their kind of emergency aid relief side of what they do as well as their kind of trauma counselling stuff that they were doing with refugees in Lebanon. And I think it was an interesting time to go because I feel like much more so last year and the year before last, our press was really inundated with stories of refugees, a lot of them very negative, um, but also really heartbreaking stories. Mm. So, for example, um, the toddler that was on the beach yeah. and all kinds of things. So I think as a nation, we were really captured by, I can't believe this is happening to people. So it was an interesting time to go over there and see what it was really like because there's a lot of negative press. There was there was really heartbreaking things, but then there was negative press like these refugees have phones, they can't be real refugees, mm. and these refugees are wearing nice clothes, so how can they really claim to be who they say they are? So it was a really fascinating time to go over and, and meet real refugees and actually hear their actual stories and how they feel. And the biggest thing I think I left with the sense of was that it's so easy to lump refugees into the people in poverty category and assume that that's what their life has always been like. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting speaking with people and them saying, actually, I wasn't poor before now. We're standing in a tent that they live in. Some of the families we met had lived there for seven years, which is such a long time to be kind of in limbo with where you're living. And they said, safety is our number one doesn't matter what else we've got but if I know I'm safe if I know I'll wake up in the morning my children will still be alive next to me that's the priority Mm -hmm. in Syria I didn't know that I would have that Mm -hmm. yeah it was just the sense that they could so easily be you or I it's so easy for us to look at the media and say oh refugees are just poor people they've experienced this their whole lives but Mm -hmm. speaking with different people and them saying I was a doctor or I was a laborer or I was a farmer or I had land I owned my own home Mm -hmm. and They'd place their security in all of these things. And we so easily do that here. We yeah. place our security in where we live, in our bank accounts, in the jobs we have, in the children we have, or the people that we love. And they suddenly lost control of all mm. of these things through no fault of their own. And has that changed your perspective on on the refugee situation and also on your own lifestyle and the way that you live? Yeah, it really highlighted to me just how vulnerable we all are. Like the fact that they happened to be living in Syria and their lives were totally turned upside down by a conflict that was nothing to do with them. Their children are the ones that suffer most and it's absolutely nothing. They have no concept of what's happening. This is just the life that they've been mm-hmm. brought up into. They lost everything. And I think it's so easy for us to place all of our 
kind of earthly riches in earthly things like oh I need a nice house I need a nice car I need savings and if they had any of that it was taken away Mm -hmm. the house lost value because who can sell a house in a war zone bank accounts were completely went bankrupt and there was no insurance to claim back on Mm. you're left with nothing and Mm. I suddenly highlighted how vulnerable we all are like what would happen in this country if this happened in a year's time mm. and we all had to flee to France because our country was no longer safe to be in. Like we just don't put ourselves in their shoes very often. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think what we saw out there was really encouraging because the thing I love about tier fund compared to some other charities is that they don't just turn up and say, here's a blanket or they, or here's some food and then leave again. But actually mm-hmm. they really identify that a person is more than just a physical being that mm-hmm. needs to be fed and needs to be blanketed. Mm-hmm. Actually, they have spiritual needs, they have mental well-being needs, and they recognize that person as a whole person and see that they're really deeply wounded, particularly children mm. who just have no idea. We shelter our kids from so much in this country, and they don't have that choice. Mm. So these kids have been left with really deep scars. But we saw amazing kind of trauma care and like anger management training happening in schools, which was funded by TFM Partners just saying actually if you've grown up and you've not seen examples of forgiveness and reconciliation and love all you've seen is hate yeah. anger death and fighting how as a child are you supposed to know what you do in the future and are we going to see a whole generation just lost to i don't know what to mm. do when i get angry all i've seen is people killing each other in the streets because they disagree what happens when we disagree in the classroom mm. actually teaching those kids look here's what we do <laughs> I went into a school and sat with the kids as they learned. And it was basically, it was so simple. It was just drawing like a journey, like a mind journey of where do you go when you get angry? Like you take a deep breath and they had to like stick these different things onto their journey. I take a deep breath. I tell someone I love that I'm angry or mm. I work out what, where the hurt is. And then I seek forgiveness. And just these kids kind of, it, like you could almost see the cogs turning. And it was really exciting to see a whole new generation empowered. And mm. when I spoke to them, they were like, yeah, I want to be a doctor. She was mm. an eight-year-old girl. And it was really nice to be able to look her in the eyes and kind of say, like, really cheer her yeah. on and say, yes, like, yeah. I really want that for you. And I really can see that that's achievable. And it's really good in that difficult situation where, on the one hand, you think or you know that a child that age shouldn't have to have that kind of support to get mm-hmm. through trauma and work through some of the things that they've seen and create a mind map to deal with, with the trauma they've seen. Yeah. Um, children shouldn't have to be in that situation. Mm-hmm. But in that context, you see the power that it has and the work yeah. that's being done to move someone from a place of despair to a place of hope. Of mm. I can be a doctor and I can make yeah. a difference. And I, you know, I've been in not exact situations like that, but similar ones where um, you then see the hope that they have in becoming a doctor to help people who were in their situation. Yeah. And it's the circle of that is so incredible mm. that God's calling them to do these jobs that in turn will help people like them and, and their communities in the, in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned about relating to people in that situation. I read something you wrote after you got back from Lebanon in uh, Delicious Magazine where you were mm-hmm. talking about food, kind of crossing borders yes. and crossing cultures. Was that an interesting part of the trip to see how food connects people? I think hugely, particularly because I don't speak Lebanese or Arabic mm-hmm. or all the different languages that are being spoken so when we were having meals, we went and visited a lovely refugee family and a lady called Arij opened her home to us. We went in, we took our shoes off, 
and they cooked us this absolute feast. <laughs> so cleverly done. They kind of they took me into the kitchen where only women are allowed to go. And there was 17 women in this tiny room around one camping stove. And they were like expertly maneuvering pots and pans on and off the stove to work out what needed the heat and like using like spices really sparingly but really cleverly. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember saying like is this your family? She said, "Yes, this is my family, but also we all lived in the same town in Syria, but when we moved to Lebanon, mm. we've all kind of set up camp together because this is a community and food was right at the center of that they all cooked together the women would cook together and then they would feed everyone so then Mm. we sat down they kind of laid out this rug and and we all sat down and ate together the food that they'd made and we didn't speak a word of their language they didn't speak a word of ours but we sat and we ate together and you have that shared experience of hospitality Mm. and I just felt so challenged that actually like me and my husband moved into a new flat about six months ago and do we know our neighbours? Mm. <laughs> Would I invite my neighbours round mm. for a meal of that kind of intimacy? She didn't know me from anyone. I could be, yeah, she didn't know me, but she invited me into her house, into like the most intimate part of her house, into her kitchen to help her cook mm. and then fed all of us. And I felt really challenged to, if this is what's happening with yeah. people who have absolutely nothing, it's who so don't know where the hope is. It's isn't it? It really is. I felt really ashamed. Yeah. I felt really ashamed. I thought... How I don't know my neighbors' names. I'm really trying now to make a conscious effort to be Mm -hmm. more thoughtful in that because I just loved how everything else could be stripped away, but that would remain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So what else are you up to at the moment? You've written a couple of cookbooks. You're involved in a couple of charities. What's uh, what's the present look like for you in in the future? It's exciting. I feel like I, I still don't plan huge things in my career because I love just trusting God and seeing what he'll do with it. But I'd love to write another book at some point. Um, I've written two, which I absolutely adored, and it's so exciting to see them on the shelves. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> and another surreal. one. surreal. <laughs> yeah, very surreal. <laughs> I remember walking into Waitrose and seeing a cardboard cutout of you. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, that was surreal for me, but it must be really that surreal for you. That was extremely surreal. My parents have it in their garage. Do they? <laughs> That's even more surreal. <laughs> <laughs> so when you can't make it at like family gatherings yeah, and I stuff, am. they just bring the cardboard cutout. <laughs> I know. There's so many fun things. And then um, we're doing a tour with Tearfund at the moment called Cakes, Bakes and Faith, We've been visiting mm-hmm. different churches and me and my friend Will Torrent talking about like, being a Christian in the food industry and the trips we've been on. I also work with another charity called Bramber Bakehouse where we teach women who've experienced sex trafficking, like physical baking skills, which I really enjoy because I find a lot of social media stuff and event stuff, you don't get to bake that much. And I love baking. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really fun getting to be really hands-on and see the, the hope and the healing that like training people in skills and like giving them a new kind of thing to live for and that's another area that fits in with with your passion for human trafficking so i mm. guess that's something that god had for you long before it even came up right yeah absolutely he works in incredible ways and then my husband and i are also youth workers so we do youth work at our church with the 11 to 14 year olds so we have our like hands in lots of different things mm-hmm. but i really love it because i feel like god sustains us <laughs> he sustains me and I have the opportunity to do unpaid things like youth work and tear fun stuff and Bramber stuff. And I mm, love that so because it means that, yeah, I feel like I don't have to worry because I know he's got me. He's got my future mapped out and whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Wait and see. And we've gone through a whole interview without talking about your greatest achievement of all time. Uh, your Blue Peter appearance. <laughs> to be fair, I would count that up there. <laughs> you should. You should. That must have been as, maybe not as much as, as Bake Off, but... I mean, if I I was on Blue Peter, I'd have all kinds of nostalgia and be like, I used to watch this when I was younger. It was funny because I watched it a lot when I was younger. I used to adore it, but it felt so different. Bake Off, when you're in the tent, it feels like the tent. 
Whereas Blue Peter, the studio is tiny. <laughs> Do they still and have the tortoise? Uh, there, I don't think there was any animals there. Was there was not? There. Oh, sad. man, I'm writing to the BBC tomorrow. Yeah, where were they? I think they <laughs> wheel them out for different things. But yeah. like, I was just amazed because they make it look so big. Like I've been on Sasso Kitchen as well, and it was a similar thing. Like The room is probably only about like three metres wide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all there, like all squashed in, but they managed to like stretch it out. Yeah. Blue Peter was amazing though. It was the only thing I've done which was live. <laughs> like you have to like race between the different <laughs> things. Like the camera's moving one way and we're all running and, the other way. And were way. you baking live? I made some cake pops. Okay. But I basically assisted in cake pops. Okay. They were kind of like... Oh, was that the classic time. here's one we made Here. earlier? Yeah. Did they say to, that? I got to say the line. Oh my word. It was worth That's it. That's better than the badge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's really good. And... Uh, uh, you've achieved something that I one day hope to achieve, but don't currently know how I'll get on Blue Peter. So you find a way. I'll find a way. <laughs> maybe podcast related. But, yeah. Um, thanks so much for your time today. Really enjoyed chatting. No, you're welcome. Um, how can people follow you? Find you? You can find me online. You can search Martha Collison. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest. I have a blog called Baking Martha as well, where I post recipes, etc., etc. there we go really good chat with Martha Chris what stood out to you when you listened to it listening to Martha reminded me quite a bit of uh, my chat with Bryn at uh, Blue Bear Coffee this kind of like way that God just works on our lives where it's like here's all these random things that you're interested in and here's some stuff that you're good at and actually we're going to get to a point where all of these things converge into like the perfect kind of like this is what your like always like your purpose like this is what you do this is how you can work out your faith and justice and what you enjoy Mm. Um, so yeah I love just kind of hearing that you know stories about like being at big church day out and feeling like you're literally the only person there being talked to Um, and it's something that I think quite I feel I hope like quite a few people can relate to and even if you can't relate to it at this point in your life I'm sure like further down the line the domino pieces start to fall into place yeah definitely um, and I'd, I'd agree I think it's really it's one of those things where when, when everything comes together like that you can't help but just turn to God and thank him and mm. praise him for what he's doing because those jigsaw pieces that all come together for sure um, wouldn't have done otherwise so that's it for this episode thanks for tuning in we're back on the 4th of November where we'll be chatting to Camilla who founded Podium which is a podcasting platform for young journalists if you like what you heard today, then make sure you hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram at We Are Tear Fund.